All right, well, today we're continuing on in our series, Malachi's Modern Message, and in it we've been following a discussion that God has been having with his people. We've been watching God sit down across the table on one side from uh, a rebellious, obstinate son and have a chat about his behavior. And the first thing he said to them was, I love you. And, you know, they were suspicious of God's love for them, but God said, I have loved you with covenant love. And the second thing he said to them was that you should love me back. And we saw that they were offering God a weak, diseased worship offering. And after that, God talked to them about how they're treating one another. And last week, we began to see this progression emerge in this conversation where God says, I love you, and then you should love me back, and this should result in us loving people. And so this is a pattern that we see all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so now today, we're going to pick up where that conversation left off last week. And so the next several verses, beginning in Malachi chapter 2, verse 11 through 16, God's going to move past all of this and focus in on some of our most important relationships. He's going to talk to them about marriage and family. So if you're married, this message is for you. And if you ever think you might be married someday, this message is for you. And if you know somebody who's married, this message is for you. You might be able to help them, okay? So um, he laid the foundation in verse 10, showing us what principles should motivate us all in our, in our relationships. Now he's going to apply these principles to the family, to marriage. And so the title of today's message is Malachi's Message on marriage and family. Malachi's message on marriage and family. Now, before we start, there's just a couple things I kind of want to give by word of explanation, okay? Uh, now, marriage is one of, is probably the most fundamental and important relationship across the entire world and throughout all time. And it's really important to God as well. It's, it's one of, God has some really important things to say about it in the scriptures. And so it becomes important for pastors to faithfully teach and proclaim God's ideals about marriage, to faithfully teach what the Bible says about marriage, and to hold up those standards, encourage you to those standards. And, uh, but there are times, there are some times, because we're human, you know, because we fail sometimes, people fail, there are times when we come to faith in Jesus, or we come to a relationship with Jesus after we fail. You know, after we've had a broken relationship. And uh, when we come to Christ, everything from our past, all the failures, all the sins, they're all covered over. They're all forgiven, right? And you start fresh and new. But sometimes a sermon like this, because, you know, a pastor needs to be faithful in holding up God's ideals, sometimes it can tend to, to bring up some things from the past. And I want you to know, as we talk about this this morning, it's not my intent at all to bring up any false guilt or anything like that about things that are already covered over. About things, I mean by the blood of Jesus. You know, about things that God has already forgiven and you've moved on, okay? And because uh, I believe that God wants you to be successful and faithful in the marriage that you're currently in, okay? Does that make sense to everybody? All right, we're all on the same page there. The second thing I want you to know this morning as we start is something about the nature of the scriptures we're going to look at. You will notice as we progress that a lot of the scriptures we're covering in Malachi and some of the other ones seem to address men a lot. 
Like in uh, Malachi, you know, it says uh, he addresses the men who were divorcing their wives. And uh, Jesus said, if a man divorces his wife and commits adultery, you know, uh, he commits adultery. And, and it's not because it's, like it's okay for women, you know, to divorce their husbands or to be unfaithful. It's just that in Malachi's day, it seems like it was the men who were the, the, the bigger problem. And uh, in Jesus' day as well, Jesus said, uh, if a man divorces his wife. And it's because women in those days... Um, were generally not divorcing their husbands at all because women had no way of earning a living or they had very little opportunity in those days to earn a living. So now in our day, it's different. Women are in a much better financial place. So as we go through this, um, please know that these scriptures are applying to all of us equally. All right, y'all got that? Y'all with me now? Okay, good. So let's, uh, let's just have a word of prayer as we look into our scriptures this morning. God, thank you for your love for us, God. Thank you for your word towards us. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits, God, to receive it. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right. So we saw last week in verse 10 that God wants our relationships to be characterized by increasing love and honor and respect for each other. And now in these next verses, God is going to push this idea forward and apply it as he addresses two separate but related issues with respect to marriage and the family. In verses 11 and 12, God's going to talk to them about who they are marrying. And then in verses 13 to 16, God's going to talk to them about how they are treating who they are marrying. All right, so let's take them one at a time. Beginning in verse 11, it says this, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. And so God's looking across the table at this obstinate, rebellious child, and he says, you know, I love you, and you should love me back with all of your heart, and and, and you should love one another. And then God presses it a little bit further and says, you know, you've been unfaithful. You know, you've done something detestable. You've desecrated my sanctuary. And, you know, that's pretty blunt, don't you think? Unfaithful, detestable, desecrated. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. You know, you don't have to worry about God tippy-toeing around your feelings. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. God is usually pretty straightforward with you, right? pretty blunt. How many of you have ever had somebody come to you and there's something, you know there's something they want to talk to you about, but they're just beating around the bush and they're really not getting to it? Right? And you feel like, just say, okay, would you, would you just say what's on your mind? I can tell something's bothering you. Just say it, right? Well, you don't really have to worry about God beating around the bush with you. He, he's pretty direct, and he's straightforward here. Uh, and he says, you know, you've been unfaithful. There's something that you've done that's detestable. You've desecrated my house. You know, and at this point, I think if it was me across the table, you know, I'd be saying, God, what are you talking about? You know, you know how have we been unfaithful? How have we desecrated anything? What, what detestable thing have you done? And so God continues. He says, by marrying women who worship a foreign god. It was a way of saying that they were marrying non-Israelites. And God is saying, in doing this, you've been unfaithful. You've done something detestable. You've desecrated the sanctuary that I love. Now, right about here, we need to stop and offer a word of explanation. Because in our day, a restriction on the nationality of the person you're going to marry seems a little bit uh, old-fashioned, doesn't it? It seems a little bit out of place. After all, the New Testament doesn't seem to place any restriction on the nationality of the person that you're married. Now, maybe some people still do that. 
my grandfather, my, my mother's father, my Pepe, may he rest in peace, you know, he was very much French-Canadian. And all his children, they spoke English, and they also learned to speak French as well. And so when my mother brought home this French-Canadian guy with that funny-sounding la last name, Boisvert, and he also spoke French, well, my French-Canadian grandfather thought that was just great. He wouldn't have it any other way. Now, a little bit later, like uh, on, on Jill's side, when, when Jill Early, that was her maiden name, uh, in this very Irish family in north, on, on the north side of Boston, I, guess, you know, I mean, some of her family, I think, felt like only Irish Catholic Democrats go to heaven. You know, and, uh, and if you could ever marry a Kennedy, you, 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 you just uh, guaranteed the entire family's place in heaven for all eternity, right? So when she brought home this kind of French-Canadian guy with the funny-sounding last name, and uh, he didn't have all of their views, well, it, it took just a little while for a few of them, let's say, to warm up to me, right? But they did, eventually, right? I mean, because how could you not, right? <laughs> I noticed my wife laughed. She didn't say amen. She just <laughs> laughed. So... You know, but in our day, we don't really think like that anymore, right? I mean, um, who, who's saying, you know, hey, we're Italian, you got to bring someone home Italian, or, or we're Irish, you got to bring someone home who's Irish, or we're this or that or the other thing, right? Uh, we're kind of past that. We've moved past that as a society. What difference does it make, you know, if, if you marry someone who's North American or South American or Asian or African or European, right? What does, difference does it make? And so a restriction like this seems a little strange and out of date to our 21st century ears. And so let me give you just a little bit of background. Right? In those days, one's nationality was very much tied to their religion. So if you were an Israelite, you would worship the one true God, Yahweh, or at least that's how it was supposed to be. And if you were an Egyptian, you worshipped a pantheon of Egyptian gods. And if you were Moabite, you worshipped the detestable false god, Molech. And if you were from Tyre or Sidon, you were a worshipper of the gods Baal and Asherah. And uh, so... From the uh, earliest times, we see this concern among the Israelites about who they were marrying. And according to the law of Moses, they weren't supposed to marry anyone except someone who was an Israelite. And it wasn't because the Israelites were more valuable or because other nations were less valuable. Remember, last week we saw that the Imago Dei, the image of God, is stamped on everybody, so, so everybody is valuable. But it was because marrying foreigners who worshipped foreign gods would entice them to worship false gods. And there was a reason that this was true. It's because worshiping false gods is easier than worshiping the one true God. It's easier than worshiping Yahweh because there were many moral requirements if you were going to be a worshiper of the one true God, a worshiper of Yahweh. And, uh, and the worship of these false gods did not have these restrictions with them. As a matter of fact, uh, the worship of these false pagan gods was often very much tied with the expressions of sinful fleshly desires, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It was very much tied with the worship of these false gods. And so it was easy to fall into the worship of false gods. And, and this wasn't just a theory. It happened right at the base of the mountain of God. As God was on the top of the mountain, Balaam and Balak sent a bunch of women who worshiped foreign gods to entice Israel into false gods. And right there, while God's on the top of the mountain, there worshiping 
false gods. And then Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, through marrying foreign wives, got enticed to worship and lead Israel to worship false gods. And then even down through Ezra's day, that was still an issue that Ezra was dealing with, and Nehemiah as well. And, and this is how it translates into the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament thing. This is how it translates. It's not anymore about the nationality of the person. It's about their relationship with Jesus. So here, let me show it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's answering some questions that they had about marriage. And in verse 39, they had apparently asked about widows. And what if a woman's husband dies? Can she get married again? And, and Paul answered, if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. Paul says if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you love Jesus, you may get married, but there's, there's no restriction with respect to race or nationality or socioeconomic status. You know, it doesn't matter what they look like, what they, what they sound like. The only restriction that is given is that they must be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's not wise for a Christian to marry someone who's not a Christian. It's not wise for a believer in Jesus to marry someone who's not a believer in Jesus. And it's not wise for someone who wants to love Jesus with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength to marry someone who really has no interest in loving Jesus at all. Because it's easier to live the other way. When you're a follower of Jesus, you're swimming against the current. You're swimming against your natural inclinations, the sinful nature, and you're swimming in the opposite direction that culture is going. And so if you tie yourself to someone who just kind of wants to float wherever the current is going, or if you tie yourself to someone who's swimming the other way down current, it makes it that much higher. It's easier to swim downstream. And, and, and I know some think, I've heard some people say, you know, Pastor Paul, after I get married, then, then uh, you see, I'll win them to Jesus. Or after I get in a relationship, I'll win them to Jesus. You see, it's missionary dating. And, you know, maybe that happens from time to time. I'm sure there are examples that people can, can, can share. You know what? They, they, they came to Christ sometime, sometime later, and I was able to win them. The, I'm sure there are examples of that. But more often than not, in my experience, it's been the Christian whose faith suffers, the Christian whose love for Jesus grows cold. And more importantly, whatever we think about our, what our experience shows, missionary dating runs against the counsel of a God who loves you and wants you to love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so now here we come back to verse 11 in Malachi chapter 2. And we see that the same thing that had happened in Moses' day the same thing that had happened to Solomon, the same thing that had grieved Ezra and Nehemiah was happening again a hundred years later. Many of them are following a path that will lead them away from loving God and serving God. And I encourage you, if you're a teenager, you're thinking about these things, to make up your mind, you are going to find somebody who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you, if you are a parent and you've got children, to begin to teach them when they're young that they need to find someone and look for someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a grandparent and uh, you've got uh, grandchildren who are uh, wanting to love the Lord Jesus, they're coming to church or they're trying to grow in Jesus, to encourage them that God's got someone for them who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 12 as we continue. He says, As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty, even though he brings an offering 
to the Lord Almighty. And so here, after this return from exile, God looks around, and many of the people, they're trying to worship false gods. They've been marrying these, these women who worship false gods, and they're worshiping false gods, but they want to worship God at the same time. And we see, we see God is concerned for who his children are marrying because he wants them to love him with all their heart and mind and soul and strength. All right, now let's move on to the second issue, verses 13 to 16. Here God's going to shift the conversation a little bit. He's talking about marriage and family, and he, and he still has in view the idea that they've been unfaithful, they've done something detestable, and they've desecrated his house. He's just going to push it a little further. All right, he begins in verse 13, and he says, God says, another thing you do. Now, I love this. How many of you have ever been talking to your children and you heard, your, heard yourself say, and another thing you do? All right. How many of you have been that child? All right. Or, or you heard it from your boss or your spouse or something. You're on the other end of that conversation. Someone going, and another thing. And you know that, you know, it's probably best right now just to keep quiet and let this, let this play out because they're on a roll, right? And it may not be good to interrupt right now. And so it seems like God's on a roll. And another thing. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure but from, from your hands. And you ask, why? All right, so here's the situation. Here's the picture. God says that they're doing something unfaithful and detestable. They're trying to buy God's favor. They're, they're saying, you know, we, we bring you offerings, yet... yet you don't show us any favor. You aren't receiving these offerings from our hands. It isn't fair. Why, God, why? You know, and we already saw last week that the offerings they were bringing were weak, lame, diseased offerings to begin with. And, and now we've seen this week that they were also worshiping false gods and worshiping uh, them as well. And so here we see that the way it looks to God is that they're simply trying to buy his favor. They're trying to bribe God since he doesn't have their heart. It's kind of like this one city that was, that was really controlled by the mob, by organized crime, and uh, just, just terrorizing everybody, controlling the city, everybody afraid of them. And finally, this one mob boss dies. And so the family all comes to the pastor and says, Pastor, we want you to do the funeral. And, and here's the thing. You do the funeral, we're going to make a donation of $100,000 to the church. But there's one condition. You've got to say he was a saint pastor, so they left, the pastor thought about it and said, you know, well, I can't be, I can't be lying here, and so the day of the funeral came, and, and uh, he got up to do the eulogy, and he, and he began to tell the truth, uh, how this guy had terrorized the community, how people had disappeared, you know, when they opposed him, and how he had ex extorted money from uh, business owners all over the community, and hurt and maimed people, and then he paused for a minute, looked down at the family on the front pews, and said, but compared to you all, he was a saint. <laughs> They're trying to buy off the pastor, buy off the church, right? And here, I'm trying to buy off God and trying to bribe God. And here, that's what's happening here. They're, they're trying to bribe God. And, and, and God is saying, you know, you, you think you're going to act in all of these unfaithful, detestable ways, and then, and then you're going to bring me a lame, weak offering, and, and that's going to make it okay? And, uh, and look at the pictures. The picture here of them, it says they're weeping and wailing and whining. 
And God asks, and they ask God, why? Why, God? I mean, it's the four W's. Weeping, wailing, whining, and why? And God, he's over here, and he seems to be completely unmoved by all of this weeping and wailing and whining. And it kind of leaves you to ask, like, what is going on here? Here's this picture of God's child flooding the altar with tears, and God seems to be completely unmoved. What kind of a situation would cause God to be so unmoved by all of this weeping and all of these tears? I thought God cares for us, right? Doesn't he say, cast all your cares on me because I care for you, right? And we just said earlier, God's going to wipe every tear from every eye, but here is all this weeping, and God's not wiping any tears from any eyes, and, he, and he's not moved. Well, you know, there are times when you weep before God, and it moves God's heart. He does say, cast your cares on me because I care for you. Right? He, does, he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Hannah wept before the Lord in prayer, and the Lord heard her cry and gave her a son. How many times have I heard uh, Christian women say, you know what, they were trying to have a child, but they, and, and it seemed like they couldn't, but they fasted and they prayed and people prayed, and then God opened their womb, God gave them a child, right? There are times when, when, when you weep before God and you bring stuff before God and it's godly, and God's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, right? But there are also times when you can weep and wail and whine before God, and God will be completely unmoved. Some of you are going, what? God, really, Pastor? There are times when you can do that, uh, weep and wail, and God be completely unmoved. Esau sought the blessing with tears, it said, but he received nothing because he treated God and God's blessings with contempt. There are times when the situation we are in is the result of God's loving discipline towards us. And he's not going to be bought off by some cheap, little, lame worship offering. He wants to get our attention. You can't bribe God. You get, and so you can cry and weep and wail and whine and flood his altar with tears, but if you're not willing to deal with the issue that God is wanting to deal with you, then it's not going to move God's heart. So here, look at this situation here. They're weeping and wailing and whining, and, and God doesn't seem to be moved. And, so, and they're asking why, so God's going to tell them exactly why. He says, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. Well, here it is in verse 14. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Oh, so that's what's going on here. It looks like what had been rather rampant among them is that many of these Israelite men were divorcing their wives and marrying younger women. And not only that, but it looks like they were divorcing their wives in favor of younger women who worshipped other gods. They were looking for women who did not come with all of the moral restrictions that Israelite women came with. And God says in doing this, they were being unfaithful. And notice that he brings the idea of a covenant back into it again. He says that they have broken a covenant. They're not only being unfaithful to their wives, but unfaithful to God as well. Unfaithful to the covenant. And then they were trying to buy God off with some token, weak, lame, diseased offering. Is it any wonder that God wasn't moved at all with their weeping and wailing and whining? 
And so it's like Israel's on this side of the table, and they're, they're weeping and crying, and they're saying, God, we try to please you. We bring you these offerings, and uh, uh, we weep before your altar, but you don't respond. You, you, you keep withholding your favors. God, this isn't fair. God, why, why? And God kind of looks back across the table and says, you know, I'll tell you exactly. Would you just stop crying? Would you just wipe up those crocodile tears for a minute and suck it up? I'm sorry, does God, does God talk that way? I, sometimes in my spirit, I think he talks that way to me. You know, just, just grow up, you know. And uh, he says, I'll tell you exactly why I'm withholding my favor from you. When you divorce your wives and replace them with foreign wives who lead you to worship foreign gods, you're being unfaithful. You're doing something detestable. Then you're desecrating my house by, by bringing these weak, lame offerings and, and trying to bribe me with them. And so this is one of those times when they flood God's altar with tears and God's not moved. When you're unfaithful to your spouse, when you treat your spouse in a poor way, then that will put you in a position where, you, where God is unmoved by your prayers. And that's not just Old Testament. That's not just Malachi here. Let me show it to you in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I bet you some of you ladies can quote this. It says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Oh, Pastor Paul, are you saying that if, if, if I don't treat my spouse right, God might not be moved by my prayers? Something would be hindering my prayers, my, my, my relationship with God? That's exactly what God says. Look at, going on in verse 15a, back in Malachi, he says, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. So the idea is this, the one God made you. The one and only God of the universe is the one who made your marriage. He's the one who made the marriage covenant with you. He's the one who united you, the one that consecrates your marriage. From the beginning, marriage was God's idea. Jesus said it this way. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Did you know marriage is not a 50-50 contract between two people? According to the Bible, it's a three-way covenant between God and a man and a woman. God is involved in every marriage. And someone might say, you know, well, Pastor Paul, you know what? Uh, uh, we didn't have a church wedding. We didn't have a pastor marry us, so we didn't invite God. It doesn't matter if you invited God or not. God is the one who created marriage, and he's involved in every single one of them, whether you want him to be there or not. It was his idea. And his idea was this, one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's his plan. That's his ideal. And so if you break this covenant, you're breaking a covenant that involves God. And Jesus went on to add this. He said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And so the only reason Jesus gave, the only acceptable reason 
Jesus gave for, for breaking up a marriage relationship was marital unfaithfulness. The, the word in, in, in the Greek is fornication. And a little bit later on, the Apostle Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, also added abandonment. If one spouse abandons the other. But then there's more. There's something else that they weren't considering. In their focus on their own wants and their desires and their own happiness and needs. Let's look at it. Continuing on in verse 15b. It says, And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. Now here's something it seems like they weren't really seeing. See, God wants children to be blessed. God loves children. And he intends that the family be something that points children to him. There's something about how God created the family that illustrates something about who God is, or at least it, it's supposed to. According to Ephesians chapter 5, the way husbands love their wives and the way wives love their husbands, it's supposed to illustrate for, for children how Jesus loves the church and how the church loves Jesus back. And so it's like God's looking across the table at these Israelite men and, who are acting so unfaithfully and detestably and, and asking, what about, what about the children? Have you considered the impact on them? This is not good for them. This is bad for their faith in me. This is, this is damaging for their faith in me. When you break the marriage covenant, you're doing damage to these children that I love so much. And, and Jesus said it this way. He said that it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck than, and be tossed into the sea than to offend a child. Now, I know if you look hard enough, you will find plenty of people who will tell you, you know, children are resilient. They just, they'll bounce back, you know, because um, uh, they're resilient. It really doesn't affect them much in the long term. You know, can I tell you, share with you something that we should know from the Bible anyway? But a lot of current research shows that I, that idea just isn't true. You know, it's one of those ideas that has been repeated and repeated and repeated so often that everybody just, like, assumes it's true. We've heard it and heard it and heard it so often. They're resilient. They just bounce back. But according to a landmark study that was done over the course of 25 years where they followed children of divorce, and they interviewed them 18 months afterwards and 5 years and 10 years and 15 years and then 25 years afterwards, they did this study, and they expected to find this is, and this is what they said they expected to find, that the initial impact was very devastating and traumatic and upheaval, but after a few years, it just you know, kind of waned and went down, and 5 and 10 and 15 years later, it was pretty much negligible impact. It was nothing different. Everybody was just fine. And they said that what they found, that's what they expected to find. They went in with a little bit of a bias that way, but what they found was exactly the opposite. The writers of the study said this, contrary to what we have long thought, the major impact of divorce does not occur during childhood or adolescence. Rather, it arises in adulthood as serious romantic relationships move center stage. Anxiety leads many adult children of divorce into making bad choices in relationships to give up hastily when problems arise or avoid relationships altogether. And they discovered that after 25 years, these now adult children of divorce continue to experience substantial expectations of failure, fear of loss, fear of change, and fear of conflict. They also found that children of divorce tend to engage in premarital sex and cohabitation more often than children who haven't experienced divorce in their families. And they carry with them also a deep sense of abandonment and loss even 25 years afterwards. And they found that they often struggle with anxiety, 
and depression and with forming and maintaining healthy relationships at a greater rate than those who weren't children of divorce. Divorce harms children. There's no way around it. And God's looking across the table at them and saying, you know, you're hurting my children. You're putting a roadblock to faith in front of them. You're hindering them from becoming the godly people that I want them to be. Then going on in verse 15 and 16, he says, So be on your guard, and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Look at that phrase. Does violence to the one he should protect. Violence. You might ask, now God, what are you talking about violence? Nobody's been accused of hitting anybody. Nobody's been accused of striking anybody or physically hurting or wounding anyone. You know, it, it's just divorce. Yeah. And God calls it doing violence to the one you should protect. Violence against the spirit of a relationship that should be great. You know what? There's no one that you should protect more than your spouse. There's no one whose feelings you should protect more than the feelings of your spouse. There's no one whose joy that you should treasure and protect more than the joy of your spouse. And there's no one whose well-being that you should protect more than the well-being of your spouse. There's no relationship that you should value and fight for and do everything in your power to nourish than the relationship you have with your spouse. And so now, as we're getting ready to conclude this morning, I want you to look at that last phrase, so be on your guard. And do not be unfaithful. Be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. He says it twice in these last two verses. You know, there's no shortage of things out there that have the potential to damage your relationship. You know, there's all kinds of temptations. Too many to number. If I were to start naming them, we could be here all afternoon. However, I can tell you that all of these temptations are going to come in three categories. One is materialism. That's the lust of the eye, the desire for things. When anything or material possession or job or anything that you can have becomes more important to you than your spouse, then you're in danger. Be on your guard against materialism, against the lust of the, of the eye, damaging your relationship with your spouse. The second area is the area of sensuality. That's the lust of the flesh. This is any sinful desire of the flesh. Sinful desires of all kinds can damage your relationship with your spouse. So be on your guard against letting sensuality and the lust of the flesh damage your relationship with your spouse. And the third area is the area of pride. The pride of life. Self-centeredness, self-focusedness, selfishness. When we focus on, on our needs, when our needs and wants and desires become more important than our spouses, it can damage your relationship. So I say, be on guard against pride in your relationship with your spouse. Don't let pride damage your relationship. 
Be on guard. And do not be unfaithful. So here's what we're going to do this morning. As they sing this song, we're going to sing a verse and a chorus. And as they do, I want you to just take a minute. And just let God probe you about your relationship.